Jamaican tacos in Texas, Portuguese donuts in Hawaii, and French street food in New York. This week, it's all about transplanted cuisine. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson. Welcome to Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. This is where we explore the great cuisine of the world at DestinationEatDrink.com and here on the Destination Eat Drink podcast. And this week, we're exploring food that travels, transplanted cuisine. But first, I've been getting a lot of feedback about last week's episode, specifically when I mentioned to my guest Eunice Reyes that I almost set a Dunkin' Donuts on fire 45 years ago. Some folks questioned, I don't know, maybe questioned is too strong a term, but they were wondering if that was really true or if I was exaggerating the facts of the story. And I thought I'd tell you the story, at least how I remember it from 45 years ago. I was a 15-year-old kid, got my very first job at Dunkin' Donuts in our town outside of Chicago. And I remember I got paid a whopping $2 an hour to mop floors and clean the bathrooms after school a couple of days a week. Not glamorous for sure, but I loved the job, not only for the free donuts and for the extra pocket money, uh, meager as it was, but because the girls that worked the counter were all juniors and seniors at the high school, and I was just a freshman. So it was a great status boost for me when these quote-unquote older women would say hi to me in the hallway at school. Anyway, during summer vacation, the owner of the Dunkin' Donuts taught me how to actually make the donuts. Big promotion, right? From mopping floors to making the donuts. Make the dough, roll them out, cut them, fry them in the giant vat of fat. Now, remember, I'm 15 years old, and I really had no business doing this. But on the weekends, I would make donuts starting at like 2 o'clock in the morning. That's right. Two o'clock in the morning on a Saturday night, and I'm all alone in the Dunkin' Donuts making Bavarian cream and jelly-filled donuts and chocolate cake donuts. And after the shift, what you'd have to do is let the grease cool down and drain it from the fryer to clean it. Well, one time I forgot to turn off the fryer, so the coils that heated the fat were still red hot. And after I drained the oil, all the crumbs and the residual fat settled onto the coils. And after a minute or two, they ignited flames coming out of the fryer. I panicked. And instead of getting the handheld fire extinguisher, I pulled the cord for the entire kitchen fire extinguisher system, which flooded the room with that white fire extinguishing powder. I remember sitting there covered in dust, wondering what to do next. So I called the owner, told him what happened and proceeded to clean up the room, which took me 12 hours to finally get the kitchen back into working order. And the owner, of course, was not happy because a lot of food had to be thrown out. So there you go. That's the story of me almost burning down the Dunkin Donuts in Barrington, Illinois in 1979. All right. This week's show is about transplanted cuisine. That's a dish or an ingredient that travels from one place to another by migration, colonization, maybe by animals or just plain luck. We're talking about tacos with a Jamaican twist, sweet rolls from Hawaii that are originally from Portugal, 
and a marriage of Brazilian and Dutch sweets, plus a street food from France in New York City. All right, I'm starving, so let's eat. Destination, eat, drink. Jose Rilat is a journalist who has written extensively about food and is the author of the definitive Tacopedia. What you're talking about is uh, the Jerk Shack. The Jerk Shack, right, in San Antonio. In San Antonio, yeah. So that was started by Nicola Black and her husband, both of them are military vets. And so she's a native Jamaican and wanted to really bring the food of her homeland to San Antonio and if you're going to open up a restaurant in San Antonio and put it on the historically Mexican-American West Side, you better serve tacos. Right. Uh, and so that's what she did. And they're expanding now. Again, the pairing is a natural. It's highly seasoned grilled meats, lots of spice, although not as much as you you would think Nicola toned down the jerk rub mm. recipe when she noticed that it was overwhelming customers' palates, and really that's not what you want to do, right? Because you're gonna you're gonna lose customers if the food is too hot to eat. You're gonna go out of business pretty quick, I guess, without any customers. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's been extremely successful, and and it's extremely good. Maria Lawton hosts the TV show Maria's Portuguese Table on PBS. She shares stories of the Portuguese culture and people migrating halfway around the world to Hawaii and Macau. You know, we lived in Hawaii for a little while a few years ago, and when I got there, I was surprised about all the Portuguese uh, people that were there, people with Portuguese heritage. They came to work in the pineapple plantations, the sugar plantations. And yes. one of the things that's there, one of the remnants of the of them being there 150 years ago, and still there today, of course, is the uh, malasadas, which are the little Portuguese donuts. The fried, yes. And one of my favorite things about in Hawaii is that they put a Hawaiian twist on it by a lot of them are filled. My favorite one is filled with lily koi, which is passion fruit. <laughs> and I was just wondering, um, what's your favorite way to make uh, malasadas? you make them at home? Do you go to the bakery? How do you enjoy those? Well, it's very easy to make at home. But the... <laughs> <laughs> it just is. Fried dough, right? Is, is, yeah, I mean, you're asking me if I, I mean, it's very easy to make at home. And growing up, you only had it a certain, only a few times a year because it was like, you know, the before, um, before Lent, that was like, that was when you would have your sweet, your malasadas. Uh, you would also have your malasadas around, you know, like Easter. You could have it sometimes around Christmas time, but then that was it. So, um, so here again in the East Coast, every Saturday you can go to the bakery and they make it special on Saturdays. Malasadas is always on the Saturday for the bakery. Mm -hmm. And what's funny is, is when you talk about Hawaii, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. The are. Very early on, you had people who came from Madeira, as well as the Azores, who went to find work in Hawaii in the sugarcane plantation. 
And besides Melisabas, which they fill it with different flavors, um, the Azorian type or the uh, ones from um, Madeira, they're not filled. They're flat. They're pulled. The dough is pulled and then it's fried. In the mainland, they fill it. And in some islands of Fayal, they fill it with a cream. So it's like everyone does it a little bit different. So I grew up with the non-filling. But to have it, the thought of having it filled with passion fruit in there, that sounds amazing, But number one. But besides malasadas that came with them, also it was the sweet bread. Mm, the sweet bread is yeah if the hawaiian if you buy now go to the store and you buy hawaiian uh, you know sweet rolls or whatever it is that is uh absolute take on our portuguese sweet bread i never thought of that before but that's so true it's just like yes. portuguese sweet bread those little rolls that you can get at the grocery uh-huh. store in any grocery store in the u.s and it's a big deal yeah. in hawaii too but of course the that has to be from the Portuguese who came there 150 years ago. Absolutely. And the whole thing is, is when the show uh, became distributed throughout the U.S., um, I had um, all these stations because every station in PBS is independently owned. So and independently run, even though they you know have different distributors and all that stuff that come that are things are offered. So when it became offered through a distributor to all the stations, the first station that took it was Hawaii. <laughs> yes. That was the first station in the United States that and I actually heard from the people at the station which was like incredible. The people at the station had last names as Cabral, mm. as Souza, as Amaral and I went, "Oh my god, we could be cousins." My people. <laughs> My people. And that's the whole thing. The Portuguese have been there, like you said, over a hundred some years. And what's happened is, is the Portuguese have uh, married into the Hawaiian um, families. And so it's a mix of a beautiful mix of Hawaiian and Portuguese that are in there. But all of them, they all were like, we're so proud of our Portuguese heritage. Even though it was their, you know, <laughs> great grandfather that came over, you know, or their great grand or their grandfather. It was like, oh my goodness. So when they saw that it was Maria's Portuguese table, they were like, oh yeah, we're showing this. And so it was so beautiful. And of course, the other thing they said is, when are you filming here? I was going to say the same thing. That sounds like a yeah, season two episode, you, Maria. Yes. And they're like, and when you film here, you let us know because we want to like, we want to be part of this. And it was, it's that love and how proud we are, no matter what generation it is. It's really just crazy how, um, you know, wherever we go, our, of course, our food comes with us. So in all the colonies that we were in, whether it was, you know, Macau, we had our, um, what is it, the Franciscan monks that brought with them the pastel de nata. And so when you are, um, and of course they, you know, tried to, um, our colony there in speaking Portuguese and introducing, you know, a lot of the foods, the bacalhada, all the thing. So now when you go to Macau, there is 
a um, an area where they call the food macanese because it is a uh, a mixture of the food of Macau with Portuguese influences. What would be the kind of dish you would get there that would be a combination of Macau cuisine and Portuguese cuisine? Do you know I actually have a book that I found that is coming to me, and this is why it came to me like very quickly to talk about this, in talking about the Macanese food. And so it would be, they used a lot of the bacalhau um, that came in, but they would also influence whatever uh, vegetables that they had there that was indigenous to Macau. Or, um, but the community is getting smaller and smaller. And those that there was a small, um, a small group already that could speak Portuguese and they're getting older and they're passing away. And all of that is like could be lost. And there are, there's this one woman who is uh, putting together like uh, a cookbook as well as the things that like the history on that. And I have my, my eyes set on getting that because it, again, it is so important to have that, um, to see how we influence their cooking in the same way that in, um, you know, we also, for Japan, it's tempura. We introduced tempura to them. Tempura is a Portuguese uh, thing. The, as well as if you go to um, India, we have um, Gua, and they speak Portuguese there. There are those that speak Portuguese still. And we have the um, the Vendalu is the Vingadaj in Portuguese. Oh, wow. Which is wine and garlic. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, there is like so many like influences and in so many different ways of throughout the the world it, with our cooking because we um you know we had that spice trade we we had we went all over to and we influenced wherever we went and we had our colonies so it's you know and then again in brazil it's the peri peri that's where that started. The peri-peri comes from there. Taish is the founder of Amsterdam Food Tours, and he tells me about combining a Brazilian and a Dutch treat. Uh, yeah, so there, there, there are two ways to the story. So uh, then we have to go back into history. Uh, yes, the big there was Brazil, but before uh, Brazil, it was Portuguese. Huh? And, uh, uh, we had a bit of a fight with the Portuguese in the 1500s, the 1600s, you might remember. Hmm. So, uh, actually, the, the Dutch conquered quite a lot of uh, colonies from the Portuguese. Uh, for example, in India, but also in uh, uh, Brazil. Um, or Suriname, South America, for, uh, for example. So... Um, People tend to forget is that the Dutch had a huge uh, colonial empire in the 1600s, 1700s. New Amsterdam, South Africa, Indonesia, India, Taipei—you name it—it it was all yeah, yeah. possessed. Um, and obviously, yeah, uh, all these spices came uh, here to the Netherlands and uh, were mixed with our, our food scene. Um, and the Brigadeiro is, 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 is a funny example for that because yes, it's a Brazilian sweet shop. 
but they combine it with uh, stroopwafel. Oh, <laughs> cool. We already talked earlier about. And uh, because we only want to have, you know, the best quality, the best flavors on our tours. And uh, during week times, unfortunately, there's not a really good stroopwafel bakery in the Jordaan. So we go to their place where they have this fantastic frigadero with a stroopwafel flavor. So we can enjoy the best of both worlds. Um, and we also uh, they have a fantastic variation with a hagelslag, and hagelslag are chocolate sprinkles. We try to market it in the United States. Some Dutch guys as hagelslag, <laughs> and uh, that is something the Dutch we we have we have a, we have a large uh, uh, bread eating uh, culture. So our breakfast is open sandwiches just with cheese or ham or chocolate on it, called hagelslag. Um, so. Um, yeah, and then and you asked me about is there a huge Brazilian uh, community in Amsterdam? Yes, yeah, so it's, it's not the, the largest one. The largest international communities would be the people from Indonesia and Suriname, and uh, nowadays, uh, from since the nineteen seventies, the Moroccan and the Turkish uh, people live here. Uh, just to remind you, we have eight eight hundred thousand people living here in Amsterdam. So that's a small city, but we have over one hundred and eighty two nationalities. That's more than New York, for example. So um, you can basically find any kind of food you can find here in Amsterdam. I love the combination of the Brigadero and the Stroopwafel. Uh, this is something that I've talked about on the podcast before called transplanted cuisine. It's when something yeah. comes from a different place and it, when it comes to the new place, it maybe changes a little bit yes. um, to yes. suit the taste and the cuisine of the of the new place where it's landed. And this Brigadero mm-hmm. with a Stroopwafel seems like it would be a perfect example of that. Um, yes, do we, yes. Do we have any other cultures that have uh, brought stuff to uh, Amsterdam or to the Netherlands and maybe change things around, or maybe it stays the same? What what kind of other international things could we enjoy when we're in Amsterdam? So what, what we really is, is big here, obviously, is Indonesian and the Surinamese cuisine. Um, so Indonesia, well, obviously, yeah, it's, it's the country next to Australia, and Indonesia was Dutch for over 350 years. Um, and became independent in 1947, and since then a lot of people returned from Indonesia, and they started their Indonesian restaurants here in the Netherlands. Um, and there's one specific dish, or actually it's a range of dishes that is very popular to eat, and it's called the Rijstafel, and in English that would translate as rice table. I remember the rice table, so good. Ah, you had it, ah, perfect, perfect. So uh, you, you might remember all these dishes brought in one go to the table, um, and that was actually, it was a Dutch invention, uh, and it was to reflect, you know, the visitors to Indonesia, you know, look at this, this is such a big country and it's all out. We possess it. We serve you food from every possible region of Indonesia for you to try. Uh, but it's like a Dutch invented feast meal. So that's something you really should try when you are in Amsterdam. Um, and next to that, we have the Indonesian Surinamese cuisine. And Suriname, I have to explain to you, that's a country uh, in South America. It's uh, bordering Venezuela. And that was an important Dutch colony for more than 350 years, and it became independent in 1975. Um, and Suriname is actually where the Dutch had uh, their sugar plantations and, and, well, not a very favorable part of our history, the Dutch, we were a big slave traders as well. 
So the Dutch brought in many slaves from Africa to Suriname to work on the plantations. And after slavery was ended, the Dutch replaced them with cheap labor from China, India, Indonesia. Um, and they also brought their foods into Suriname. So we have a very small country and there's so many flavors over there. You have the Chinese influences, Indian, uh, Jewish influences, Spanish, French, Portuguese. Everybody has been there. Um, mm. And in 1975, Suriname became independent, and around 100,000 people from Suriname came to Amsterdam, also came to the Netherlands, and many of them to Amsterdam, and they started the beautiful Indonesian, Chinese, Surinamese, uh, togos, and takeaways and restaurants. So that's another thing you should really try um, when you are in Amsterdam. What would be an example of a Suriname dish? Because I'm not sure that I'm really familiar with Suriname cuisine. What would we look for? Well, I think there are and someone from Suriname will probably correct me, but uh, one particular dish is called the roti. Uh, roti is a um, um, it's, it's like a pancake from, from India, uh, made from chick, uh, sorry, pea chick, no, chickpea, chickpeas, <laughs> chickpea flour. Yeah, chickpeas flour. Yeah, there we go. Uh, and that is served with boiled potatoes. Um, then with uh, some vegetables, um, then you could have some salted fish, for example, to go with it, bacalhau, uh, former Portuguese, Portuguese, or, yes, uh, blood sausage, which is Jewish, or uh, braised meat or chicken. Uh, it has green beans, it has loads of spices. Uh, so it's like a big Suriname stumble, you would almost say. Wow, big plate of food, and it's all combined together. Uh, so that is a really certainly is comfort food. Uh, but also our satays. Yeah, satays are Asian, of course, but you have the Suriname style, which is a bit more often is chicken, and it comes with the satay sauce, which is sweeter than in Asia. That has to do with the fact that Suriname obviously had a lot of sugar uh, production um, and a lot of uh, bread, actually, with, with, with I know, uh, slow-roasted pork and uh, pickles. And, yeah, it, it, it's... It's massive, uh, so many to choose from. Michaela Malazzi is the creator and host of the PBS show Bare Feet. She talks about the restaurant community supporting Broadway during the pandemic and a street food from France migrating to New York. Michaela, let's move on to France, or at least uh, French food in Hell's Kitchen in mm -hmm. Manhattan. You visited uh, Marseille and Niza. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Tell me about this. I, I love French food. Don't know that I've been to a French restaurant in New York, although I, I, I probably shouldn't admit that because there's great food <laughs> in New York. But anyway, tell me about uh, Marseille and, and Niza. We chose Marseille and Niza because we heard a story that this there's sister restaurants. Marseille is French food. Niza actually means Nice, the, the city of Nice in French, excuse me, in Italian, because uh, it's right over the border. Right on the border. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, Nizza has a, a huge a, a French influence and Italian influence on the food. So um, it's an Italian restaurant with a, a little bit of a French Riviera twist. Um, and the reason why we chose those specific restaurants was for our reopening of stages, uh, op open stages episode, which was basically spotlighting the Broadway community, the theater community, the future of what um, performance and theater looks like in New York City since at the time that we were filming, 
Broadway had been closed for over 500 days. I mean, that is unbelievable. Who wow. would have ever thought that was going to happen? Yeah, no one. Um, yeah. So we really wanted to focus on the performing arts community specifically of what's happening. And we heard the story of this restaurant tour. This restaurant's in Hell's, Hell's Kitchen, which is bordering Times Square. It's where a lot of the theater community lives. And during the pandemic, during lockdown for almost for about a year, um, they decided they had been in the neighborhood coming up to 20 years and the theater community had supported them so much that they wanted to give back. So they started a program where they, for all union members and uh, union performers on Broadway and theater, they were given open house accounts and through, so they could eat for free wow. um, and they would they would open house accounts and anyone who would show their card could eat after eight o'clock, whatever they wanted. They would start a house account. And eventually if they started working again, they could pay them back or they didn't have to, depending on if they ever got their jobs back. So that's why we focused on these two restaurants and the food was wonderful as well. We had a beef bourguignon and a, a puff a mushroom puff pastry at, at Marseille, which were delicious. And um, the owner, Robert Guarino, he said his chef had just gotten back from France and sort of tweaked the recipe. So he was trying it again with this new recipe. And it was just so tender. The beef bourguignon was just, it just melted in my mouth. Um, so that, and it's a very typical French bistro looking spot, wonderful sort of Belle Epoque era, you know. Mm. Um, and then right next door or two doors down is Nizza. Um, a little more modern looking, very clean, you know, design. And it had this thing called soca, which I've never had. Um, and you know, Italian food is very regional. Um, and so it's this sort of pancake made out of chickpea flour and it's apparent it's gluten-free. And he said, we didn't even intend for that, but it's gluten-free. So it's become like a, a favorite for people who are gluten-free, but it's, it's a chickpea pancake with onion and sage and it's delicious and they have homemade pasta. So we had homemade uh, rigatoni with um, amichitrana, uh, amichitra, oh my gosh, I never can say that right. <laughs> Amitrichana sauce, which is like guanciale, the cheek and, and red tomato sauce. It's a Roman dish. So delicious, two very different styles of food. Um, but we thought what an amazing story and what an incredible way to give back to the Broadway community. Cause you know, restaurants were hit hard too. So it was, it was wonderful to see that they were supporting each other. I was, I was so glad to see that, uh, you featured the Soka because I'll, I'll tell you, my brother is a filmmaker and he made a mm. documentary short about Soka in Nice. Wow. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And he was, you know, we, he had him on, I had him on the podcast and we talked about it and the, you know, the Soka is a, is a beautiful dish in Nice. And then I wasn't familiar with the Soka either. I was familiar with the Italian version because like you said, Nice is like right on the border. You can take mm -hmm. the train and you're in Italy in half an hour or something. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I was familiar with the Italian version, which I think is called Farinata, which is very similar, made with chickpeas and, and, the, whole, and the whole deal. But I hadn't had the Soka before. But now that I know about it, and in fact, as I'm as I'm speaking to you, my brother's back in Nice right now, um, getting oh, ready wow. to, uh, and he's going to come visit us in Portugal. But anyway, I'm looking forward to hearing more about uh, Soka <laughs> and his visits there to like Chez Therese and places like that in Nice, because yeah, you can get it everywhere in Nice. It's so cool. Well, that's what they said. That's what Robert said. He said, it's like a street food. You get it. You know, they just put it in like a... a they wrap it up and you walk and eat with it. And so here they sort of made it this 
refined dish, you know, but it's street food. I love it. It's all street food, right? All this, the Ripa Lady, Birialandia, all this street food is just amazing. Okay, there you go. I'll tell you, transplanted cuisine is one of my favorite topics on Destination Eat Drink because there's always an interesting story or an interesting twist on the recipe. So much fun talking about it with all my guests. You can get info on Jose, Maria, Taish, and Michaela in the show notes. That's at radiomisfits.com slash DED222. Well, that's it for this week. Next week, we are in Italy and the island of Sardinia, home of pecorino cheese and bread that looks like a work of art. Don't miss that. Until then, get over to DestinationEatDrink.com. I just posted a story about an abandoned military base in Portugal that has some of the most incredible views in the entire country. Get that at DestinationEatDrink.com slash abandoned. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter to keep up to date on the podcast, the website, and our videos. That's at DestinationEatDrink.com. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by the Radio Misfits Podcast Network and a guy who wonders why the French don't pair Soka with Scotch, Ed Silla. I mean, they've almost got the same letters. Thanks, Ed. I'm Brent Peterson, and I'll see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.